Good morning. Welcome to Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Thank you for joining us as we study through God's Word. Well, turn with me to Mark chapter 3 this morning as we continue our study together. And we've seen Jesus doing ministry throughout the towns and the villages of Galilee. And as was his pattern, he would come to a village and he'd go to the synagogue. And his critics knew this. And they would show up there when they knew he was in town. And this was the situation that we come to here now in Mark chapter 3. So let's begin with verse 1. It says, And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. So Jesus, being a good church-going man, arrives at the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he walks inside, and there's this man with a withered hand. But there's also another group that's there, and they're probably sitting in the front row, and they're likely wearing all their distinctive clothing, identifying them as the religious elite. And as they sat there, they looked at Jesus, and they looked at this man with the withered hand, and they knew something. And I think that they knew that Jesus wanted to heal that man. But what's amazing to me is that they even made that connection at all. I mean, they obviously had faith in Jesus' ability to heal this man. And they sat there with great anticipation to see if he would actually do it. And you would think that this healing, or potential healing, would be a wonderful thing. There's a man with a great need. And he meets the man who can meet that great need. But all their anticipation wasn't about the healing itself. Rather, it was whether Jesus would break the Sabbath laws in order to do it. Now, I want you to remember a study from two weeks back before Easter. This is still the same day as the events that happened at the end of chapter 2. So it's very likely that these religious leaders are the same ones who got, up with, you know, got upset with Jesus earlier on. And they're the same ones here in the synagogue that are just waiting to accuse him. Now, why would they be so upset about a man being healed? Why would they think that this was so wrong? Was it because the scriptures forbid healing on the Sabbath? No. It was their traditions, their religious traditions that told them that this was work. And so you shouldn't do work on the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus shouldn't perform this healing, because it was work. And you can see it really comes down to your definition of what work is. And these religious leaders weren't defining work by God's definition, but on 
traditions. And the last time we talked about these two, we learned about these two things about the Sabbath. Do you remember them? The first one was the human need is more important than the ritual observance. And the second was, is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let me give you an exa- a small example here, just of how this worked. If you cut your finger on the Sabbath, you were allowed to use a Band-Aid to stop the bleeding. That's a human need. But you were not allowed to put ointment on it because that would promote healing. And healing, of, of course, was work. And as such, it's a no-no on the Sabbath. And when you spell it out in this fashion, we see that often we can be petty with our traditions and they actually get in the way of what we're really trying to accomplish. And we can really be truly bound by these traditions. Now, if you want to see how powerfully traditions can bind and blind people, look again at verse 2, where it says, And they watched him closely. Friends, when you are so bound up in religious traditions, even watching Jesus closely can be turned into a bad thing. Now, normally, you'd think that this was a wonderful thing, right? I mean, we want people to be looking at Jesus closely. I know I want to watch him closely, but at the end of verse 2, it tells us why they watched him closely. They watched him closely so they could accuse him. That's not a good reason to watch Jesus closely, is it? Just to watch him so that you might criticize him. And that can be a dangerous thing about coming to church. Did you know that you're doing something very dangerous this morning? You're hearing about Jesus, and all in all, that's a wonderful thing. But if you don't do anything with what you know about Jesus, if you watch him closely, but don't turn your hearts towards him in love, you can leave here in worse condition than you came. And that was the state of these men here. They knew that Jesus could heal. They knew that Jesus wanted to heal. They knew Jesus was there that morning, and they watched him closely. Yet you see that there's no heart of love, and there was no heart of giving toward Jesus. And you can kind of just feel the tension beginning to rise in that synagogue, can't you? Well, look what Jesus does here in verse 3. It says, And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Now, some of us may be a bit more timid than that. We might be more apt to say, "Um, Can you come back tomorrow? Uh, Then we'll get you all fixed up. I don't want a confrontation here. Or, hey, 
Can you meet me around back after the service? Then we'll pray for you. But what does Jesus do? He calls the man right to the very front. Step forward. Like Jesus, you do realize that that's where the religious leader is sitting. And they're already kind of put out by you. And this is really going to offend them. But Jesus wasn't concerned about offending their traditions. In fact, he was more purposely challenging them to examine their own religious traditions. Jesus wasn't trying to be argumentative or to goad them. He was always trying to teach them. They would just never receive it. But you know, religious traditions are a funny thing. We rarely recognize them in ourselves. But we very easily recognize them in others, don't we? Oh Lord, I'm glad that I am not bound in the traditions like these other people are. (laughs) And those of us who pride ourselves in coming from a non-traditional church, it's just as easy for us to be blind in our own traditions and our own customs, and we get bound up in them just as much as anybody else can. Can I just invite you this morning to pray a very dangerous prayer for your Christian life? Pray this prayer. Lord, if I've got traditions in my life that keep me from really knowing and following you, shatter those traditions. Offend those traditions in my life. And that's a risky prayer. But it's a very good prayer because tradition can really blind us and bind us and take us from looking at Jesus with real eyes of love. So Jesus called the man to step forward, but now look at verse 4. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life, or to kill. But they kept silent. And it's a brilliant question, isn't it? Jesus is essentially saying, how can there be a wrong day to do something good? How can it ever be wrong for me to heal this man on any day? And I'm sure that when the crowd at the synagogue heard what Jesus had to say, they all went, wow, that, like, that makes sense to me. I, I never thought of it that way before. A- and maybe they really do have it wrong with all these traditions about the Sabbath. Maybe we don't need all of them. This makes a lot of sense. And of course it made sense. <laughs> Just look at how they defended themselves. What did they do at the end of verse 4? What did it say? But they kept silent. I mean, like, what else could they say in response, right? Well, Jesus had a response for them. Look at verse 5. And when he had looked around at them with anger, 
Being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now there's two things that grab our attention here in verse 5. First one's the anger of Jesus. We're not used to seeing Jesus angry, are we? As a matter of fact, there are only a couple of times in the entire New Testament where it mentions Jesus being angry, and this is one of them. So what was it that made Jesus angry? He was angry at the hardness of their heart. Their own religious traditions had built up a callus over their heart. And they'd become so hardened in their hearts towards Jesus to the point, point where they could look at him. And they could look at the power of Jesus. And they knew Jesus had power. And they knew that he could do great things. Yet at the same time, their hearts weren't soft and open towards him. And when Jesus saw that hardness of heart, he became angry. Friends, we know that hardness develops by a constant friction. So when a person pushes away Jesus and rejects him time and time again, there is this hardness that develops there. It's like a callus that gets built up. And I honestly think that what angered Jesus as much as anything here is that this was all so unnecessary. It didn't have to be like that. They had a choice and an opportunity. It was up to them. They could have turned their hearts towards him, but instead they chose to harden their hearts. But I want you to notice something here. This is not pure anger as we know it. This isn't Jesus just fuming. Look at verse 5 again. It says, And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Yes, Jesus was angered, but he was also deeply grieved. To be grieved means to mourn, to lament, to sorrow greatly, to be brokenhearted. So this sorrow, there's sorrow. There's anger. All at the same time. These people had a need that only Jesus could heal. He was there, willing and able to heal, yet they continued to resist him again and again. Second thing that catches our eye in verse 5 is that Jesus asks the impossible. Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. Remember, this man's hand is paralyzed. It is a physical impossibility for this man in his current state to do what Jesus just asked. But Jesus told him to do it. And so what did he do? Did he argue with Jesus? Did he try to explain all the reasons why he couldn't do what he had asked? Did he tell Jesus, hey, If you heal my hand first, then I can obey you. 
Does that sound like a lot, a, a lot of us when God gives us a command? We make excuses. We argue with him. We try to explain all the reasons to him why we can't do it. Or, God, if you do this for me first. But no, the man goes, I'll do it. And Jesus commanded me to do it, so I'm going to do it. And so he stretched out his hand and Jesus made it as whole as the other. He obeyed God. He placed his faith in Jesus. He was healed. Now when God does a healing work, everybody gets excited and rightfully so. The man who had the withered hand, he's excited. The crowd at the synagogue, they're very excited. Jesus and the disciples were excited. But not everybody was. <laughs> Look at verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Now that's a funny reaction, don't you think? Jesus just healed somebody. We'd better kill him. <laughs> I mean, hmm, that's uh, very strange. But now do you see why Jesus was so angry at the hardness of their hearts? They have just seen the spectacular power of Jesus right in front of them. They're in the front row. I mean, they got the best seats. And instead of rejoicing in the goodness and grace of God, they go out and immediately begin plotting how to murder a godly man. Now, did you notice who it was that they began plotting with? The Herodians. And it's very interesting here because these groups were not friendly with one another. See, the, the Pharisees were a religious party. And they were focused on restoring the kingdom of David. The Herodians were a political party focused on restoring the throne to King Herod. So it's, this is like, get this. This is like the white supremacist joining with the Black Panthers to plot to kill Jesus. It's just not normal. But this now becomes a dramatic turning point in the ministry of Jesus. But what does Jesus do next? Here, look, let's look at verse 7. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him, and the unclean spirits, Whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So now we move into a different phase in the ministry of Jesus. Before, his fame and celebrity, so to speak, was on a local level. But now people are coming from great distances, from far regions, just to see and hear Jesus. And whereas his audience maybe were in the hundreds before, now they're in the thousands, maybe ten thousands. 
And now they're all crowding around him so that it's hard to do any ministry. So they keep a boat for him by the sea so he can float out and then preach to them on the shore. And we get the impression from these verses that many who came were not always flocking to Jesus for the best reasons. They were coming to Jesus more for what he could do for them than coming to him for who he was. And of course, what he can do for you is a fine reason to come to Jesus. But it must go far beyond just that because the same crowd that looks for Jesus to do a miracle for them was the same crowd that would be shouting, crucify him. The same crowd was more interested in the spectacular than the spiritual. So this was indeed a critical turning point in his ministry. The crowds are praising him while his enemies are plotting against him. So in the midst of all this, what did Jesus do? He chooses men whom he can pour his life into. Men who he can train and raise up for leadership. Look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Now, if we flip over quickly to Luke chapter uh, 6, uh, it'll be up on the screens for you here, but Luke fills in a few details of this same uh, story. It says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. So between Mark and Luke's account, it tells us that Jesus went up to the mountain and he spent an entire night in prayer. He came back down. He chose his disciples and they came to him. And I want you to know that in one sense, there was nothing more important that Jesus did in his three years of ministry before the cross than what he did right here. Because these men would carry on the ministry that he started, and without them, the work of Jesus would not have extended to the whole world. We wouldn't be here. And so how did Jesus choose them? He chose them according to the will of God. Look at it there in verse 13. He called to him those he himself wanted. Why was Peter chosen? Why was John chosen? Why were any of the other disciples chosen? Because he wanted them. Jesus sought the Father's will first, and then the Father whispered into the heart of Jesus, and Jesus said, I want that man, that man, that man. Those he himself wanted. But I want you to notice something else here at the end of verse 13. It says, and they came to him. Jesus said, I want you. 
and they came to him. Well, now, wait a minute. Which was it? Were they really the disciples of Jesus? Was it because he chose them? Or was it because they came? And the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> the answer is both. And neither of them is, is more important than the other. Yes, he chose them. And yes, they came to him. And friends, it's the same with you and us. He chooses, you come. Now, you may be sitting here or watching in uh, online and you're thinking, am I really chosen by God? Did, did, did God really choose me? You know, God hasn't exactly informed us who the chosen are. It's not like he's put this bright yellow light on our forehead that flashes chosen. He hasn't identified them in any other way. We know the chosen because they choose him. Do you really want to be one of the chosen? Then choose him. Well, I don't know if I'm one of the chosen. Well, you can know. You choose him. And friends, if you choose him, he's left us a wonderful promise in his word. In John 6, verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will in or by no means cast out. Well, John, what if I choose him and I'm not really one of the chosen? I can tell you truly, it doesn't work that way. When you choose him, you will know that you are one of the chosen. So Jesus called them and they came to him. But what is it that he called them to do? Look at verse 14. He then appointed 12 that they might be with him. The first job of a disciple was to be with Jesus. A disciple is a student. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is an apprentice. How does an apprentice learn his job? By hanging out with the master working regularly with the expert and the expert teaches you things and you go along to get, you know, as you go along together and you learn by watching and by hearing and that constant interaction. And the apprentice is there faithfully day in and day out ready to hear the master. Ryan, you just finished your apprenticeship. What do you call an apprentice who doesn't show up to work? Unemployed. <laughs> and it's the exact same way when we follow Jesus. We are his disciples. We're his students. We're his learners. We're his apprentices. We learn by being with him. 
And there's a personal attachment the disciple has with the master that is so precious. Secondly, verse 14 and 15 tells us that they were, their second job was to preach, to have power, to heal sicknesses, to cast out demons. Now, if you notice, that is pretty much what Jesus did, right? I'm going to train you to do what I do. And that's exactly what he did. He poured his heart. He poured his life. He poured his ministry into these men so that they, in turn, could pour out to others beyond that. Now, I don't know if you want to be a disciple or not. You know, to be like Jesus or do the the things that Jesus did. But Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, then come follow me. Follow my footsteps. Learn of me. Come be with me. Now, some of you may be wondering if you're qualified for this. Maybe Jesus doesn't want someone like me to be his disciple. Well, let me put your heart at ease here. This next section's for you. Verse 16. Let's take a look at this collection of guys that Jesus chose. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into the house. So here we have a complete listing of these 12 disciples. And it's interesting that we really don't know a lot about these men. But the ones that we do know a, a, a lot about or know more about They're not particularly spectacular. Look at the Apostle John, known as the Apostle of Love. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation. But he was nicknamed, as it says here, a son of thunder, probably referring to his angry outbursts. Then you have the Apostle Peter, a man with a real up-and-down relationship with God, always seemed to be sticking his foot in his mouth. I can relate to this man. (laughs) But look at some of these other guys. You've got Simon the Canaanite. Now that's probably a bad translation because it had nothing to do with geography. A better translation would be zealot. This identifies him with that radical zealot party. This man was a revolutionary. He's a nationalist against the Romans. And then you remember earlier in Mark, we were introduced to Matthew. He was a tax collector. He was a collaborator with the Roman government. So now you've got a lifelong enemy of the Roman government in Simon, and you've got a collaborator with these vile Romans in Matthew, and I can just picture Peter saying with a grin, I think you guys are going to be roommates. (laughs) Like, 
And that's not to mention all the ill will that there would have been between Matthew and the fishermen after he had ruthlessly taxed them. And you can see why there were always quarrelings and squabblings amongst these disciples. But what an unlikely group of people that Jesus put together, right? So why would Jesus choose a group of people like this? They weren't prominent. They weren't wealthy. They weren't famous. They weren't particularly talented or well-educated. He didn't choose them for their skills and abilities. But he knew what he could make of them. Jesus ignored all of this. And he picked the most unlikely group of people, just like us. Now, if there's any more unlikely person chosen, we see him in verse 19. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. Now, I admit, I don't get it. Why, Jesus, why on earth would you pick Judas? And my mind goes back to that mountain where Jesus prayed all night. And I wonder how many of those hours that he spent praying for Judas. So why did Jesus choose Judas? It wasn't because he didn't know how he would turn out. It wasn't because Jesus saw this incredible potential. I'll take a chance on him. Jesus said he knew that one of his disciples was a devil. It wasn't because he had no other people to choose. That there were no one else, there's no one else around. It wasn't because he wanted somebody around to be a bad example. Look, Judas wasn't a, an example of bad things until the very end. In fact, Judas was probably the most highly respected and qualified of all the disciples. He was a level-headed guy. He was a smart guy. He handled the money for the whole group. My friends, I think God has something to show us in the selection of Judas. Hear me out here. Jesus picked Judas knowing all the time exactly what Judas would do. There's no mistake here. But at the same time, Jesus looked at Judas and he could say, you are going to betray me. You're going to set in motion events that will attempt to destroy me. But God's hand is on my life. God's plan cannot be thwarted in my life. You can't ruin this because this is of God. 
Friends, do you know why we need to hear that? It's because sometimes we have people in our life that we think betray us or hurt us or turn on us or wrong us. And in a figurative sense, they're like Judas to us. And sometimes we agonize over this. Lord, why did you allow this? Why did you put this person in my life? Why, Lord? Well, there can be many reasons that I can't presume to tell you them all. That I can tell you that as much as anything, one of the reasons why God has allowed that person in your life is to show you that no person can destroy God's plan for your life. If Jesus or if Judas couldn't do it for Jesus, nobody can do any to your life. No, if God's plan in your life is going to be derailed, if it's going to be sidetracked, it will be your own doing. It won't be somebody else doing it to you. And isn't that a liberating thought? Do you need to be set free from that this morning? Knowing that God hasn't put your life in bondage to somebody else. He hasn't. And even though somebody might think that way, it's not true. God has set you free and he's given you liberty with who you are in Jesus Christ. But the other great lesson as we ponder the question, why did Jesus choose Judas to be a disciple? I think a better question to ask is, why did Jesus choose me? And the answer is simple. Because he knows what he can do in your life and my life. And it all begins with saying to Jesus, be my master. I'll be your apprentice, your disciple, Lord Jesus. And that's the heart he wants you to bring to him today. So why don't we pray together about these things in the life and ministry of Jesus this morning. Let's pray. And while our heads are bowed, I want to extend to you an invitation. Maybe there's somebody here this morning or watching online and you want to become a disciple of Jesus. You want to follow him. Maybe you've never made a commitment like this before. But you want to make your choice today to follow Jesus. And if that's you, the first and most important thing you need to do is to tell God that you want to make that decision. Talk to him right now, right where you are, in the quietness of your heart. This is something you do in the secret place. Your heart before God. Because it's not the prayer that saves you. It's the surrendering of your heart and your will to Jesus Christ. I give you my life, Lord. And Lord, we pray for those that are pondering that even as we speak. 
Lord, we pray Your Holy Spirit will continue to draw, continue to call. And we pray that those that are hearing that call right now will choose You. Will choose to follow. Will choose to surrender their lives to You. Lord, we know it's You that does the work. Lord, I would love to be able to pray for this entire world that they might come to know You. Lord, that's a decision that they have to make between themselves and You. And it's Your Holy Spirit that does that wooing. And so, Lord, we just pray Your Holy Spirit will do that work now. Lord, help us to surrender our lives afresh to You. Lord, if there's areas that we haven't submitted to You, Lord, I just pray that we will just let them slide. We'll forget everything else. You commanded us to stretch forth our hands. Lord, You've commanded us whatever it is that You've commanded or called us to do. Lord, help us to be obedient. Thank You for this marvelous passage, Lord. Thank You that You chose these bunch of ragamuffins as as apostles. You didn't choose these great and mighty people. You chose these guys that were bickering amongst each other. But you changed their hearts. You knew what you could make them. So Lord, do that work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. If you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to message us on our Facebook page or on Instagram. God bless.